Well, some of you know that, uh, know me and my family, you know that we lived in the Boston area for many years, and, um, and, you know, in our time there, I mean, Boston, like much of the Northeast, is a place that has kind of a great rail system. Um, we were kind of on trains all the time. I took my kids to school on the subway in the morning, and uh, periodically, um, we'd, we'd get on a, on, a, on a train to go down to New York. Uh, we had some family down there, work things periodically, and you know, I think traveling by rail is about one of the best ways to go. Uh, and one thing that I really loved about that trip from Boston to New York uh, is, is they had a thing called the quiet car. The quiet car. Um, the quiet car is exactly what it sounds like. If you, if you get a ticket in the quiet car, the expectation, that, now it's not just an expectation, they enforce it, you must be quiet. Um, there, there's no phone calls. In the quiet car, there's no conversations in the quiet car. You can't even kind of have your headphones turned up loud enough for other people to hear it because it's the quiet car. And I thought about that this week because, you know, Exodus 18 uh, feels to me like a bit of the quiet car of Exodus, of this train we've been on uh, for 17 chapters and now arriving at the 18th. And, and like the quiet car, it's not disconnected from the rest of the train. Uh, on the front end of this chapter is a lot of noise. Uh, the noise of plagues and parted seas, of grumbling stomachs and certainly grumbling people. And we're going to see that on the back end of this car, uh, we'll certainly see next week in Exodus 19, a lot more noise. The noise of Sinai, of fire and thunder and smoke and the law of God thundering from the mountain. But, you know, this chapter is also connected in another way. Uh, it functions as something like a pivot point in the book of Exodus. It's a, it's a bit of a hinge. Um, turning from, turning on the point of celebration for all that the Lord has done, even as it transitions us into a place of preparation for what he is about to do in the formation of God's people. Now, we begin with celebration, and like all celebrations, they all have a cause. Uh, there's cause for celebration here. This one kicks off with a family reunion. Um, not all family reunions are cause for celebration, but this one is. And uh, Moses is reunited with uh, his wife. We find out that he has not just one son, but he has two. But the focus here is really on uh, his father-in-law, Jethro. Uh, we... we uh, see that um, that's, we see the chapter really through his eyes, from his perspective. We haven't really heard about anything uh, from Jethro since chapter two, but so we're given a little reminder. We're reminded of two things about him. One is that he's Moses' father-in-law. He's the father of Zipporah, uh, his wife. Uh, and we're also reminded that he is a priest. He's called the priest of Midian. Um, now, I'll tell you, I've never really liked the term pagan uh, for people who don't believe as I do, for people who don't believe in Jesus. Um, I, I've met few non-Christians who would call themselves that. And um, yet, you know, as we look at Jethro, uh, I do think he could rightly be called a pagan in the strictest sense of the word. He's a person who is adhered to a religion of idol worship. And not only that, but he has been a leader uh, he's a priest, probably of a local folk religion out in the desert in Midian. 
But, but I also want to pay attention to something else. He, he is that, uh, but he's, he's, he's something else at the very same time. He is among the peoples whom the Lord loves and intends to reach with the good news and reconcile to himself. He's both. Priest of Midian, and he's among the peoples uh, that God intends to convey to uh, the good news. Now, that's been a bit of a drumbeat in the story of Exodus, right? The Exodus certainly is the story of God setting his covenant people free uh, for relationship with himself. Um, but he's also the God who, in setting his people free, is getting the good news out to people who don't yet know him, right? So that all the peoples would be set free for relationship with himself, whether he's being set free from bondage in Egypt um, or the bondage of idol worship. Uh, and Jethro is one of those people. He's one of those people who uh, is hearing the good news. Now, this, this uh, dynamic is at the heart of uh, chapter 15. We looked at this a few weeks ago. This is a great song of praise. And the people sang of this. They sang, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And the peoples have heard. Like, we've, we've heard, we've been saved, but the peoples are hearing about it. His, his redemption, in other words, resonates. It resonates loudly across the, wor across the world to the end that people hear it, hear of it. And we quickly learn that good news has been heard by Jethro in Midian. Uh, Moses' father-in-law here, who's probably, you know, spent however much time Moses has been away wondering more than once about whatever happened to his octogenarian son-in-law who set out on this thing to set his people free. But now it says that they, now they come together. Um, Jethro came to Moses. Well, in fact, um, Moses has come to Jethro. Um, he's back in Midian reunited with his father-in-law and his family. He's back in his adoptive home. In fact, he's back at the place where he first got called by God in, the in, in that story of the burning bush. You might remember that. That was here um, in Midian. Uh, there, it was said that he was at Mount Horeb, uh, but Horeb and Sinai are the same place. And, and we may have missed it at the time, but when God appeared to him at that time and in that place, uh, he made a promise, and it was this, I will be with you, and this, sign sh this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Well, here he is. He's back on the mountain. Moses and the people are at the place where the law is going to be given and the covenant will be established, and the place where, as a people, they'll be kind of formally constituted and led on to the promised land from there. And it's also at this place where you get to see, where we get to see, really what I want to call kind of the first flowerings of the promise. You know, uh, and we see it in this reunion between son-in-law and father-in-law. The very first glimmers of it. Now, like any reunion, they've got some catching up to do. They're, Moses tells his father-in-law all that uh, the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them and how the Lord had delivered them, how the Lord had saved them. You know, but I want to notice something really important here. Moses is telling Jethro news he's already heard. 
that's one of the first things you learn about Jethro in verse 1, that he heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. So the question is here, why does he need to hear it again? Well, I think it's this. It's one thing to have good news communicated to you. It's another to confirm it. And Jethro is getting the good news of which he has heard confirmed. He's been exposed to the truth, and now that truth is being verified in the testimony of Moses. Now, our translation says simply that Moses told Jethro the story, but that word for telling is, is a lot more precise and it's a lot more forceful than what we have in our text here. In fact, Moses isn't just telling Jethro the good news, he's declaring it. Um, the word carries connotations of recounting some great event that's worthy of praise. The same word shows up in Psalm 19 where it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's the same word. Day to day pours out speech. The night and night to night reveals knowledge. That's, that's the character, the flavor of how, God, or how Moses is sharing the good news with his father-in-law. That's the recounting of a great event with the deepest sense of gratitude and praise. That's what Moses is doing. And the recounting of that event is entirely about, you'll notice, everything that the Lord has done, how the Lord has saved. There's not one word about Moses' role in this whole story, significant as it's been. This is a story of God's saving work. This is the gospel according to Moses. That's what he's sharing. So he's recounted the great thing uh, God has done in salvation. And in verse 9 through 11, just this delightful little passage of Jethro's response. First, we're told that he rejoices. There's, there's just, Jethro is just delighting in hearing this good news that God had done for his people. And I want to notice, you know, uh, how Jethro is taken particularly by God's goodness in saving. Uh, the word we have here is delivering. It's the same word. He, is, he just has delight in the idea that God has saved them. His praise kind of amplifies around that. He just centers on this fact that God saves. In verse, in verse 10, he's almost redundant with it. He, he says, Blessed be the Lord who has saved you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has saved the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. I mean, he's kind of saying it twice. You know, in three times in just two verses, he's just praising God for saving. And, and I just want to pay attention to that because it's like, it's like who ever heard of such a thing? That God would save. I can't imagine it. It's too good to be true. How can it be? And yet it is. And, and I just want to step back at this point and notice what's happened. That God has saved his enslaved and afflicted people by grace. That Jethro heard the good news of salvation. He is confirming the truth of the good news of what God has done from someone who's, who has experienced in himself and he's rejoicing in that good news, and then he does something else. This is really critical. He receives it. He receives it. It's good news for him. It's not just good news that's over and done with. It's not just good news for Moses and all the people who were part of it. He receives it as good news from him. You see that in verse 11 where he says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. I know it. This is Jethro, priest of Midian, remember. 
He's a religious guy with a lot of religious experience with all the other gods. And, and, and while I cannot tell you about the specific nature of Midianite folk idol worship, <laughs> what I can tell you is that whatever those gods were, they all operate in the same way. And that is that if you want anything from me, you've got to earn it. You want provision from me? Prove yourself. You want salvation? Prove yourself faithful to me, and then I may, just may, provide for you. So you can imagine, and it helps us understand the delight when he hears the story of a God who has saved people, not because they've deserved it, but because it's been the delight of that God to do it. The British have a great word for this. He is gobsmacked. So when you step back and look at this reunion between Jethro and, his, and, and Moses, we have to see that Jethro isn't merely confirming what he's believed all along. He is converting. This is a story of conversion to a whole new belief, turning from serving other gods, the gods that would demand of me and ask that I prove myself before they do anything for me, to putting his faith in the one true God, Yahweh, who delivers because it is his delight to do so. He's receiving that for himself. And, and I not only love that we get this story here um, in, in uh, Exodus, I want to say I think we need this story. We would be impoverished in our understanding of what God is doing for his people if we did not have the story of Jethro. Because yes, God's promises are to reach the nations with the good news, but, but it's important to know that's not just some abstraction. You know, because here's the thing about the nations. They're made up of actual people of individuals. They're made up of families and fathers-in-law, and they're made up of the guy in your neighborhood who doesn't pick up after his dog. And they're made up of the, of the person who stole your parking place at Trader Joe's. And they're made up of pagan priests. So we get this story of how the good news got to one of those people as a picture of how God gets the good news to the nations, how he gets it to people. Not as, not as some abstraction, not as, you know, it's not a conversation about strategies and canvassing campaigns and tracts and memorizing evangelism scripts, none of that. It, it gets to people by way of relationship, right? And I want to say to put a, a finer point on it, it gets to people by way of relationships in which non-believing individuals are loved and honored by believing individuals, Loved and honored. There, you really see that in this relationship, don't you, between Moses and his father-in-law. There is genuine warmth here. There is affection. And it's not, you know, the warmth and affection predicated on the likeliness of whether or not my pagan priest father-in-law will come to believe in Yahweh. But it is warmth and affection no matter what. And not only that, but I want to notice there is honor. Moses honors his father-in-law. He not only loves him, he shows him respect. And here's the thing about that. It's impossible to share the good news of God's salvation from any posture other than one of love and respect. It's impossible. It's, it's just impossible to love and respect someone you consider more of a project than a person. It's impossible to love and respect someone you consider yourself superior to. It's impossible. 
So this is at the heart of what God is doing for his people so that even as he carries out his promises, he calls his people to participate in what he's doing, to love human beings, to recognize all that they are, that they're beautiful, they're made in his image, they're broken like us, and they're built for relationship with the God who made them. And, and, you know, I just want to say, I mean, as much as it hurts my feelings to see Christians, you know, because I'm a Christian, to see Christians portrayed in our culture, you know, and in our, our, in our films and our books and in our media or whatever as, as sort of scolding and sour and self-righteous, as much as I want to say that's unfair, I just want to ask the question for a second, just for you, us to consider. You know, might it be wise, maybe, just maybe, to pay a little attention to that. You know, to, to, to not only think about all that we have to say to that culture out there, but to actually listen and pay attention to what that culture is saying about us. To, to maybe pause for a second and consider the possibility that what they're saying and what they're showing us is not just about them, you know, their hostility to the faith, their misunderstanding of it, whatever you want to say. But it's also a lot about us. You know, about our lack of love, about our lack of respect, about our pride and our quickness to judge and our hypocrisy. I mean, it seems to me that that is well worth listening to and certainly discerning when the culture kind of holds up the mirror and goes, you know, this is what we see of you. This is our experience with you. I, I, you know, I just want to consider that because I think it's possible that if we actually respect that a little bit and listen to it, it's possible that God might actually use it to soften our proud hearts, to humble us a little bit, to ask us the question of what does it look like to really love my neighbor? And by the way, the Bible has a very specific definition for what a neighbor is. The, the definition is this, everybody. It's everyone. <laughs> It's the person you're sitting next to in church right now that, that you're in a Bible study with and that maybe you pray with, and it's the person who, as it stands today, uh, despises everything the church is and stands for. So, you know, this is a clumsy way to put it. I haven't found a better way, but I think we are called to love and respect and friend, befriend and share our homes and our lives with folks who will never become Christians which is not to say that, that, that we compromise our faith or we don't pray for them to come to faith or hold back in sharing the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ in word and in deed, but it is to say that God has called us to love people, not potential outcomes. Love people, not potential outcomes. And the wonderful thing about that is we can relax. Relax because we don't have to get caught up in our own story or in, our, in, in results. Moses doesn't do that. He didn't say anything about himself. He just tells the story of what God is doing. We can do that, sharing our lives, sharing God's goodness, sharing how we've been loved and saved, because that is, in fact, the only way that people are even able to hear the good news or come to taste that, indeed, the Lord is, as Jethro celebrates here, is good. because they're getting a taste of it through his people. So Moses and Jethro celebrate God's goodness together, and that's really the celebration we're called to participate in and invite others to. Um, and this is just a great picture of that. And then the chapter kind of shifts to this other uh, 
shifts gears from the theme of celebration of what God has done to a theme of preparation for what God is, preparing, is, is about to do. Um, we've seen over the last few weeks that just because you're counted among the redeemed doesn't mean you don't have a whole lot of rebel in you. And, you know, we've seen um, how the people entrusted to Moses are quick to grumble, they're quick to complain, they are generally cantankerous. Uh, we know that they're like that to Moses. We know that we're, they're like that toward the Lord. And it comes as no surprise that they're like that toward each other. So like any, any leader, Moses has more than one hat to wear in his role. He's not only their, their liberator, but he has had to step into this role of settler of disputes. Um, it's what the Bible often refers to as a judge. Um, and we get a little bit of a feel of how he carried out this responsibility in verse 13 where as best we can tell, Moses kind of let everyone know his office hours, uh, and everybody showed up <laughs> with all their stuff, with Moses sitting there, you know, on a stool or something with just a sea of, you know, people troubles all around him. And Jethro uh, sees this. He takes it all in. And the first thing I want to say about Jethro is he's a gracious man. I've had so much fun getting to know him this week. Um, he does not... Uh, observe this and then come in hot, you know, like I've got all this figured out and here's what you need to do. Uh, he's actually inquiring. He's very loving toward Moses. He, he, he doesn't go, in fact, with a proposition. He goes with some questions. He's asking questions. And, and he says, you know, what's this thing you're doing? And Moses Lee essentially says, well, God's made me the go-to guy here and helping people understand the Lord's will. When they've got a dispute, I, I tell them what the Lord's will is for them. And you can imagine Jethro kind of taking that in and scratching his chin. And then, you know, um, he, he says what he probably sensed from the very beginning. It's kind of a hilarious little verse, um, one for the refrigerator in verse 17. Uh, what you are doing is not good. It's not good. But again, he's gracious. He doesn't just lay into him telling him that it's not good. He tells him why it's not good. And then he offers you know, some potential solutions. And he, he says this. He says, Moses, again, hear the sympathy toward his son-in-law. This thing is too heavy for you. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. And I, I want to notice he's certainly concerned, out, concerned about potential burnout for Moses, but he's also concerned about potential burnout for the people. Having a leader who's trying to do everything. It's too heavy for him and it's too heavy for the people. So Jethro graciously observes, he explains, and then he offers advice. But before he gets to the advice, I, I just want to point this out. He says something critical, something every leader needs to hear, something actually more important than the best, you know, million dollar McKinsey consulting advice that anyone could ever receive, okay? And, and it's simply this. God be with you. God be with you, Moses. He, he knows that the best advice, the best strategies, the best plans, the best people, that, that, that will always be insufficient. Because whatever else anyone may bring to the table, whatever you think you can handle, it will always be, if you actually know what it is, it'll always be too much. It'll be too much for you. So God be with you. That's the first word, and with that said, he gets on to some practical solutions that I believe can be summed up in one word, 
His solution can be summed up in one word. It's one of the most beautiful words in the, in, in the English language. The word is Presbyterianism. <laughs> isn't that beautiful? Greg, beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Musical um, word. But, but in all seriousness, I mean, he doesn't... He doesn't say, I just want to notice what he doesn't say, because he's proposing a way of organizing the fellowship, organizing the church, okay? Uh, and, and, you know, here's what he doesn't say. Uh, he doesn't say, you know what you could use? You could use um, uh, someone more competent than you, above you, a single person more capable, godly, and catalytic than you, vested with all the ecclesial authority, who will decide for you and everyone else what is best. Find that guy. Neither does he say, you know what, the congregation can just rule themselves. Quit getting in the mix here. They can handle it. He says, essentially, what you need are a plurality of elders. And, and also, by the way, some small group leaders and a bunch of lay leaders. There's a lot of layers here, but that's exactly the solution he describes. And he recommends this even as he affirms Moses in his calling and what he's able to do and what he's actually good at. He doesn't demean him or diminish his responsibilities or say, you know, you should be demoted. He says, in fact, you shall represent the people of God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the law and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. You need to be a pastor. You need to be a preacher. You know, it's like he's saying, Moses, you are at one and the same time a wonderful pastor and a terrible administrator. And it's okay. And the worst thing you can do for yourself and for all these people is imagine that you're competent in all those things. You're not. Now, I imagine that these disputes, that the, you know, we never, we're never told what they are. I, I imagine that they cover a lot of territory. But I, I have no doubt they ha that in the mix and pr prominent among them are the things that we all wrestle with today. There's probably monetary or material disputes. There's probably marital issues, parental issues, health issues, housing complaints. Um, but I also want to notice that Jethro doesn't say, you know, Moses, because of the nature of these complaints, what you need to do is gather you some experts. Get you a couple of financial whizzes. Uh, get some skilled carpenters or some certified counselors or some doctors. And I have no, I have no doubt that among those who will come to serve in this way, they bring that, those variety of skills, but those aren't the requirements. The requirement is simply that they would be able men who fear God and who are trustworthy, right? It's a whole lot like 1 Timothy 3, where Paul says, you know, ordain elders who must be above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, etc. So not only does he recommend finding men with godly qualifications, but he envisions, you know, connection in the service, connection between each other so that the smaller matters are handled in smaller groups and the greater matters are brought to Moses. In other words, you know, power doesn't just roll downhill. Um, it, it doesn't just go in one direction from the top down. It also comes, in a sense, from the bottom up. There's an interplay between the two. And Moses... And, and Jethro says to Moses, he gives him this assurance. He says, you know, if you do that, God will direct you and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace, a peaceful church. 
Now, clearly, Jethro is wise, and he's an encourager, and he's direct, and he's positive and affirming, and you see that in this statement. But, but you know, I want to, in order to kind of understand the weightiness of this, you know, I think it might benefit us to kind of invert his positive, assuring statement into a warning, okay? And the warning is, and is this. Let's just put it this way. If you don't do this, if you try to do it on your own, in other words, if you get ungodly leaders around you, if you don't disperse the power in the church, God won't direct you. You'll never be able to endure. And all this people will go to their place in conflict and chaos. That's kind of the warning behind it, right? And look, I understand there is no, there's probably no topic less sexy than church polity. I, you know, we're, we're doing, we're going to be starting up Sunday morning studies again. I guarantee you if we said, you know, let's do a Sunday morning study on church polity, none of you would come. But here's the deal about it. The Bible has a whole lot to say about it. Uh, it has a whole lot of examples about how badly it can go when you don't do what the Bible says we ought to do in terms of setting ourselves up in terms of a healthy leadership structure. And we'd be fools not to see how important it is, how vital that is to our common life, how important it is in God directing not only you, but your pastors and enabling us to endure together in the work he's called us to do. You know, for any pastor or elder or any single person to attempt to meet all your needs uh, or mine is too heavy a thing for me and for you. That's why God has been gracious to give us elders and community group leaders to bear the burden together, right? And, and I want to say, thank you, Lord. Because, you know, and my wife was at the first service, but she could grab her some time and she'll tell you for herself, I am competent in very few things. And I'm, I'm incompetent and terrible at a ton of things. You know, that's true of, certainly of me and, you know, it's less true of Greg <laughs> And le even less true of Sandy, but we're just not good at everything. We can't do everything. But we can take great encouragement from the first thing that Jethro says to Moses, the Lord be with you. And in fact, he is. We spend a little time before every service every week praying, and our, our prayer always kind of comes back to that. Lord, this is too much. It's not too much for you. Lord, be with us. That's basically what we pray every week, every Sunday. And we get to experience the fruition of Jesus' promise to us that Absolutely, he is with us. He's with us even to the end of the age and at work among his people and equipping saints to do the work of ministry. And I want to say, you know, we may not have been aware of it, but we've just seen a beautiful example of that in this text, in this story of Joseph, that, or Jethro, that we just went through. You know, because look, look at how God used Jethro. He doesn't have tenure. He hadn't been to seminary. He's, he's new to the people of God, but God uses this former pagan priest, father-in-law, to benefit Moses and the whole church with him, you know, by bringing wisdom that he has, that the church is going to benefit from. We're going to see how critical Jethro's advice is in preparing his people for the days ahead, days ahead, and, you know, seeing how they can turn on this hinge from celebration of what God's done to what he will yet do. And I want to notice in closing that right here at the precipice of Sinai, you know, all of this has been gospel before law. 
There's been 18 chapters of salvation before one chapter of Sinai. There's a lot of good news here. Five times in this passage, God's salvation is celebrated as the good news of God's mighty saving acts, not just for this one particular people, but for all kinds of people. Because God is with us, he's caring for us, and calling people to himself. And in fact, he leads us as his people to this table, which turns on the same hinge. You know, one of celebration and one of preparation. One of looking back and saying, Lord, thank you for how faithful you've been. Now, would you be at work in us and in me to prepare me for the days, of ahead, days ahead? Never decoupling from the good news of salvation that you have that you have not only enabled me to hear, but to confirm and to receive for myself. And I receive it again, even as I receive this bread and wine, uh, because you are with us even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for, again for your word. Um, uh, there's always a sense in which uh, I feel like we're scratching the surface. Uh, so it's good to know that you don't do that with our hearts. Uh, but uh, you uh, go to work deep within us. And so, Lord, as we um, contemplate these things, as we come to the table or consider the table, uh, Lord, would you attend to us here? Thank you for, thank you that you, um, that you save. Lord, we, we kind of bandy that around if we've been Christians for any time at all, like, oh yeah, salvation. But Lord, it is a gobsmacking reality that you save you, you don't just um, improve, but you have taken us from death to life. You've taken us out of slavery and into freedom. And in, in, and in fact, you feed us along the way. And so, Lord, help us to remember that as we come to the table, you know, that, that we would be struck again by the greatness of your person and your work and that we would receive from you gladly thanking you that we are no longer subject to the gods of the world that would demand that we would come to a table like this, not receiving, but proving. But that's not your table. Your table's utterly different because the work has been done, because provision has been made, because you have given us not only forgiveness of our sins, you've even given us obedience to the law, which was crushing us. So, Lord, we're thankful. Would you um, attend to us here in celebration and also in preparation as we go out into the week that we would be able to look forward to coming back and being fed again, once again, at your table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.